All right, so the gospel reading continues to be out of the book of John. And as I've kind of explained or suffered very publicly, John is very difficult to read. And we again see that taking place here in this reading. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then he, which, which is an odd thing to say, um, and we're going to get to that in a second. Because then Jesus seems to kind of go off and start talking about, yeah, but there's this helper, it's the Spirit, and I'll be in you, and he'll be in you, and you'll be in me, and then I'm in the Father, and, and I'll dwell, but isn't that meaning in? And then, and then you'll keep my commandments, because you'll love me, and at some point you just want to say, okay, slow down, Jesus, um, we need some help here. And for John, um, part of the reason why it's so difficult, as I've been saying over the last few weeks, is that it's very contextual. And context, I'm going to make a number up, is like 70% of all meaning. Um, When John introduces Jesus, and by that I mean when he starts his gospel, He does not give a story of Jesus' birth in the way that Matthew and Luke do. You know, like in Bethlehem, and then there's shepherds, and King Herod tries to kill a bunch of children, and stuff like that. Um, Instead, he begins with um, something that kind of sounds like a poem. It's not exactly, but it sounds like one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, this um, fancy pants term, this divine logos. And he, he kind of goes on for a little bit, basically saying that whoever he's talking about, which is obviously Jesus, is in some weird, hard to explain way, the word that Jesus speaks to create the universe. Not in the sense that he says Jesus and then it all kind of pops into place, but there's some weird connection between the words of God and then this actually being his only begotten son. And then John concludes this whole like thing by saying in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, pretty quickly in the next chapter, Jesus finds himself uh, in the temple. And this is uh, where John disrupts the order of events. John um, is not interested as much in chronological events as he is in um, uh, collecting events from Jesus' life by concept, which again, makes it really hard to read. Um, If only he had given some like reader's notes or something like that. Um, I guess I'm just not funny this morning. That's fine. Um, I can live with that. I'm okay. My mom will laugh. It's Mother's Day. Um, And so John likes to put, or John put that at the beginning for a very specific reason. Because Jesus goes in and he starts uh, basically pronouncing condemnation on the temple, and we won't go into it, but the temple was, uh, was a very large grift by this point. The upper echelon of priests were becoming rich off the backs of everybody by way of the temple. And when the authorities challenge Jesus, they ask him, what gives you the authority to do this? Not, how dare you, but, okay, we get what you're saying, 
Who, who authorizes you to say this and do this? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. They, of course, laugh at him. They say, it's taken like 42 years. Um, and, and it was King Herod uh, who did this. And, and then John says, it wasn't until af- sometime after the resurrection that we realized Jesus was talking about himself. Which, and I'm sure I've said this before, I love the image that that paints. Because that means at some point, John and his buddies, long after Jesus ascended to the Father, were sitting around the table, and one of them goes, Oh! He wasn't talking about, he was, he meant him. Whoa! Boom. Now, as it turns out, that is the most important theme in the book of John, period. I will die on that hill. Because as Jesus, or when John said about Jesus, and, he came, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt, eskenosin, is the word for tabernacle, which is like the proto-temple built by Moses. And when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and he turns out he's talking about himself, he's making a very big, striking claim, saying, I am the presence of God. That's a bold move. If I were to go down to UNM campus or to Old Town or wherever people gather, and I start shouting on a, on a megaphone, I am the dwelling presence of God, how is that going to be heard? Not well. And it shouldn't be. You shouldn't make that kind of claim unless it, one time in history, it happens to be true. And so one of the most important lenses to read the Gospel of John is of Jesus going around and being the very manifest, tangible presence of God, which in ages past... In, in Israel's deep history, was always found in the whole, most holy place in the temple. It was found in the tabernacle, which would roam around the wilderness and roam around with God's people before the temple. And lo and behold, the temple was described by all, in all kinds of other ways. Um, it's the source of living water. It's the source of light, the light of the world. These are all titles that Jesus ends up using to talk about himself. This is not a coincidence. And if you go around saying these things, the temple authorities will eventually try to kill you because you're trying to usurp their power. And if you happen to be right, they lose everything. And people don't tend to like that. So now that gets us to right about where our reading was for today. That same chapter as it was last week. Jesus has now had his final meal with his disciples, and he knows it. As I said last week, he has hours, not days to live. It's a complicated scene because Jesus is performing these, these uh, ritual acts of like foot washing that take on immense symbolism. He's predicted that he's going to be betrayed, and that betrayer is going to come from within. The person that he has designated to be the leader after he is gone, Peter, Uh, 
he has said, will deny that he even knows him. And yet Jesus has also done some other things. He's giving them a new commandment. The commandment being that his disciples love each other. They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other. Just like that old camp song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, they will know we are Christians by our love. I'm not going to sing it. My voice is terrible right now. Um, And so it's in that kind of complicated mess that Jesus gives what's called the farewell discourse. His final teaching before it's over. What kinds of things would you tell people if you knew you were about to die? My guess is that they would probably be pretty deep. It'd be like the most important things. Which brings us to our reading today. With all of that swirling around. He first starts by saying, if you are are mine, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's a, I don't, I don't like that. I wish that he had said that differently. Which, again, please don't hear me as being super narcissistic saying Jesus should listen to me. Um, because that sounds like it cuts against some of our core beliefs. And especially with our, our Lutheran brand of the Christian faith, one of our, our, the core things about our being is that we recognize that we are, in fact, unable to keep the commandments of God. And any attempt to do so will go one of two ways. On the one hand, we could think that we are successful, which means we're kind of overlooking our failures and we're becoming absolutely insufferable people. These would be like the super religious judgmental types. Or we'll take a good hard look at ourselves and we will realize that we in fact cannot keep the commandments and we will despair. Neither is good. It, uh, because it's, it's Mother's Day, and I might as well use a funny example, and this is one of those that my parents are probably going to call me this afternoon after I, they see this. Um, <clears throat> when, uh, I was, when my brother and I were growing up, uh, a, we were a little older, like late middle school, but probably high school is when I recall this. Uh, my mom would ask, uh, okay, which one of you wants to be my favorite? Um, now... Just, my mother is a wonderful woman. I love her to death. She was not being serious, just so you know. Just, so it's like, oh man, that's a really toxic family of origin. No, 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 no. Um, uh, we knew that when mom asked who wants to be my favorite, she has a favor to ask. And so my brother and I would fight over who had to be mom's favorite. Um, there's... If she were being serious, my gut reaction is that's kind of how what Jesus' words feel. Like, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Which puts us in a precarious position. 
what if I struggle? I mean, even, even the commandments that Jesus is, is referring to most likely are wrapped up in love God, love others, and believe in the one whom God sent. Um, that's, that, that's, that's not that easy. And so my, my knee-jerk reaction is to say, why is Jesus being so conditional when if anybody knows that we can't do that, it would be him. And this is where the context comes in. There, there, there are a couple of things at play here. Remember, this is Jesus' final interaction with his disciples. He is assuming that they love him. Peter, who will then go on to deny that he is even, uh, that he knows Jesus or is even associated with this whole Jesus movement. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he and Peter take a little awkward walk on the shores of Galilee. And Peter, or Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And three times Peter says yes, and you get a sense he's getting more and more upset as time goes on because he, he understands what Jesus is saying. And as it turns out, if you love me, and this is even true in the way the Greek is constructed, um, it assumes that the people to, to whom he is speaking already do. Loving Jesus in this sense is the assumption. And because Jesus is giving kind of his final bits of instruction to his disciples, namely, the world will know that you belong to me by the way you love each other, he is not giving his disciples instructions about how you get into this family. He's just explaining how people will know who they are. In other words, if you are part of the family of Jesus, you already love him. It's not contingent on your inability to keep all of these commandments and live perfectly as God would expect. Because if that were the case, then Peter would not belong. And I feel like if anybody belongs, it's Peter. Secondly, Jesus then starts explaining to his disciples that even though he is going to go away, Somebody else is coming. Uh, the, the helper, a lot of translators or translations will, will use paraclete, parakletos. It's, um, I think helper is probably the best way to say that. But a good translation will capitalize that, meaning that Jesus is not just talking about like a butler or something like that. In fact, it's God's own spirit come to dwell in his disciples. 
And Jesus explains, like, through this spirit, I will be with you. I will dwell in you. I will dwell among you. There's, again, that dwelling, that, that word of presence that has run all the way through the Gospel of John. In other words, if the long-running, generations-old Jewish question is, where is God? Well, God is present in his temple. Jesus is now redefining that sacred space, and it turns out it's in us. That God has made his presence within us. When we say that your body is a temple, that would be coming from the Apostle Paul. He's not being cute. He's actually being more straightforward than Paul usually is. Because wherever God's presence is, there is a temple. And if God's Spirit dwells in you, you receive God's Spirit when you enter into the waters of baptism, guess what? In a very literal sense, your, your, your body is sacred space. And Jesus wants his, this sacred space, the very manifest, tangible presence of God, animated by the words that God spoke to create the universe, to be known by the way that they love each other. Which means it matters how we treat each other. It matters what we do with our bodies. Sometimes I think Christians uh, get misunderstood. I mean, well, sometimes some of the loudest, most public Christians are just really judgmental and need to stop. But sometimes we get accused of, of being too obsessed with what's going on in people's lives or we get too obsessed about, uh, uh, about worrying about our actions and what we do with our bodies. But no, 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 that's to miss the whole story behind the fact that what we do with our lives and our bodies and in and amongst each other matters because we bear the sacred space. And in this final conversation that Jesus has with his people is that sacred space will be known by our love. So then my question to you is, what does that look like? How do we care for others? How do we be conscious of and take care of other people's needs with wisdom? How do we care for ourselves and our, our own bodies? Like all of that is wrapped up in this idea that Jesus leaves his spirit with us. What does it mean to love? Now, this is Mother's Day. I'm like contractually obligated to use that as an important part of my sermon. Um, not really, but kind of, you know. Is that we, we will often talk about, you know, a mother's love being unconditional. A mother loves her children um, in some ways more than her own self. Mother puts her children before her needs, usually. And that's true. But it's tricky. Because I'd be willing to bet that there are some of us here who did not have that experience. And so, that makes it a difficult illustration. 
one of the other features that Jesus instilled in this movement. It started with Jesus and it extends to his disciples and then they carried it off to the rest of the world. Uh, It is, of course, the most important movement the world has ever seen in all of human history. Because one of the things that Jesus did was make sure That when all were welcomed at the table of God, all are welcome to join in his family through baptism, through the faith in Jesus that God has sent them, is that regardless of your own experiences of love and regardless of what that might look like for you, maybe that was an amazing example of God's love, maybe it's a point of immense sadness and difficulty as you were growing up or as you became an adult, none of that matters because God has created this new family in which the sacred space, or in which God's presence dwells, making it sacred space to redefine that love. To show you what love really looks like. And for our reading today, love looks like a man who loves his disciples knowing he has hours left, pouring into them everything they need to move forward in his absence, but with this promise that he is going to reshape humanity by sending his presence. Amen.